So when women are mentored by men, um, they make more money. They have more promotions. They're more successful. We're more likely to retain them in our organization. They're more likely to have a higher organizational identity and commitment to the organization. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hey guys, it's RJ Singh here, and we are bringing to you our next guest today, Dr. David Spitt. Now, David has co-authored two books with his good friend and colleague, Brad Johnson, Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace, and Athena Rising. Now, his subject matter that he focuses on is cross-gender mentorship. Why it's so critical for us guys to take a part in hand in mentoring the women within our organizations to help them rise. He goes into why it's important that it is this way and that men actually take an active interest and how we are as males in a unique position to help women to get a seat at the table. Super interesting conversation. David spent time at the Naval Academy. He is a PhD and a super, super interesting guy. Now, before we leave you in the hands of David, we are going to read a review from actually one of David's friends and colleague from the military, albeit different branch, Shannon Paulson. She's a global keynote speaker, founder of the GRIT Institute, and the author of The GRIT Factor, Courage, Resilience, and Leadership in the Most Male-Dominated Industry in the World. She goes on to say that RJ does an amazing job really getting to the heart of the experiences of his guests, and I enjoyed our conversation very much, finding deeper insights in some places, my own story than I'd previously imagined. He's obviously done his own work and his quest to continue learning and improving is evident. And one he shares with great heart to the benefits of his listeners. Thank you so much, Shannon. Y'all out there in listener land, have a great week. If you haven't done so, go to the website, www.ultrahabits.co, subscribe, learn about all the cool stuff we are doing over and out. Have a great one, guys. Peace. David, welcome to the Ultra Habits Show. It is a early morning here in Sydney, Australia. Where are you joining us from today, David? I am in Baltimore, Maryland, and we're in our afternoon. So you are the, the end of the day, and you're between me and a, and a cold one. Yes, yes, yes. So look, I am... Um, I've been actually trying to catch up with you for some time. I think you were in the process of a relocation, right? You were moving house and family. Is that right? We did. We just recently relocated from Newport, Rhode Island, uh, New England area of, uh, of the U.S., down to more of the mid-Atlantic here in uh, Baltimore. Right, right. So, you know, I came across your work uh, several, several months ago, and it was really interesting in the sense that everyone's talking about mentoring, but your material was quite different in the sense as to why men need to take an interest in the mentorship of women. What I'm keen to understand is what led you into this work? Was it like, were you the bad guy or were you always a good guy? Or like, what made you realize that this was a piece of work that you need, needed to focus on? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad, RJ, you brought that up. And, you know, it's not, it's never just one thing, of course, right? There's lots of aspects that come into play here. And, you know, um, I would tell you that, you know, one of them is that, so my background for the listeners out there, you know, I spent 30 years active duty in the, in the U.S. military, in the Navy, as a, and 20 of those as an aviator, Navy pilot. Um, and, you know, one of the things, though, I, that I learned very early in my career because of my partner and spouse and better half, uh, who was also a, a naval officer, was kind of watching her, her experiences uh, at the same time as we kind of went through our careers in parallel. And very different experiences and very different opportunities and access to resources and information. Um, mentoring just being one of those, right? Mentoring and, and the sponsoring function, the advocacy function there, I think is part of that too. But, but seeing that, you know, those things didn't kind of come naturally to her and it wasn't unique to her. It was 
it was more unique to women in particular in the military that we saw that. Whereas I didn't have to go very far to look for those things. They just kind of naturally came to me. And I saw that with a lot of other men as well, that that was just part of how we, we operated. And it was very natural for us to come together. And it's kind of the, you know, the, the birds of a feather flock together aspect. Right. But, um, but if we only do it that way, right, that there's a group, a minority groups of people, and in particular, you know, around the military at that time, you know, less than 10% of the military was uh, included women. Uh, so very, very small percentage, small group out there. They just weren't getting the same access, the same quality of mentoring that um, that we as men did. And, and I would tell you that, you know, later on in my career, as I left naval aviation and I became a professor, I went back to earned my PhD in sociology and taught at the Naval Academy in Annapolis for many years. And, and that's where I met my good friend and colleague and co-author uh, for our book, Athena Rising, um, Brad Johnson. And, and Brad is a, Brad's a clinical psychologist, and he's done all of his research in the area of mentoring relationships and what makes for great mentoring. And one of the things in many of our conversations we had early on was a connection around how different groups of people didn't get the same kind of access, like women, for example, uh, the same access to the same kind of mentoring, the amount of mentoring, and, and really important, I think, the same quality. And, and, and because of that, didn't see a lot of the same outcomes when it comes to their careers. Um, and, and I thought yeah, that really resonated with me and some of the research I did as a sociologist around the aspects of, of gender work and family in particular and understanding how women we're experiencing the workplace in very different ways. And this was just one of the many ways that we saw that. And so um, Brad and I set out and worked together to do the research for Athena Rising and, and to write that book, which came out in 2016. And one of the things I think you'll find interesting and in, in the listeners out there is that, you know, the methodology behind it, of course, we brought together all the latest social science evidence and research to back it up. So it's all full of evidence-based best practices when it comes to mentoring and sponsoring. But really important because I think that when Brad and I started talking to a lot of our colleagues about the book and said, hey, you know, we're going to write this book about women and mentoring in the workplace and mentoring relationships. And a lot of our female colleagues would look at us and they had this kind of funny look on their face and they go, you guys do realize you're just a couple of dudes writing about relationships and women in the workplace. <laughs> we're like, yeah, we get that. Um, but it was a really important point because we needed to make sure that women's voices and experiences were front and center, especially as two male authors on a topic like this, um, that women's voices and experience were front and center in everything that we did. And so we interviewed women from across industries, across professions, um, as many diverse experiences as we could find about what it looked like when and what they most appreciated when men uh, were their mentors and what it you know, what would they like to share with men uh, in terms of from an aspirational perspective of things that they ought to be doing more of, and in some cases, less of as well. Um, and in some cases, we got to talk to their male mentors and, and hear from them. And I think that was also a, a great learning experience for us to hear from them in particular, what they most appreciated and what they learned um, in a lot of cases from their, their female mentees. No, that's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's interesting. We, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Shannon Holson. Uh, we had her on the show and yeah. she would be right up your alley. It, she, she wrote the, the grit factor kind great of how book. she wrote. Yeah. It was a great book, really well articulated. And one of the things I love about Shannon was she, she, she talks about the whole biases without getting controversial like you know like she she's able to manage it in a very graceful way but acknowledges that within the military construct which is highly male dominated um the challenges and i think in her book she interviews women that overcome those challenges be interesting to know of those people she interviewed the impact of male mentors because i don't think she's she went into that have you spoken to her about that i have and you know uh you know in particular there's some overlap too with some of the participants in her in her book and right, ours exactly. which is, was kind of fun to to talk yeah. about some of the people we knew and, and we, we know a lot of people in common despite the fact that you know we we come from different services uh, her being from an army but aviation also 
uh, from the helicopter community, but me from the Navy side. But, but yeah, absolutely. I think that's, uh, you know, critical and important. And, and so, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun sharing those with, with Shannon. Yeah. So let's talk about let's go to the origins here, because I'm really interested as a father of a daughter and seeing her wild spirit. And she's just so me right now. And I want to maintain that uh, enthusiasm, curiosity, intensity she has. How are our girls socialized? differently in a way that you see sets them up for potential limitations? Wow. Yeah, there's a lot there, right? And, you know, and I think, and this is a two-sided coin, of course, right? At least that, uh, you know, that how girls are socialized, but then there's the flip side of how boys are socialized. And, and again, I, it, it's, it's really hard sometimes to separate the two Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, it, it, there's, there's so many of these with girls in particular. And so one of the ones that comes up all the time when it comes to mentoring, and I think this is really important for, again, our, your male listeners, as well as the women out there to hear this conversation about emotions, for example, and how we socialize. And it's not just social, it's also a cultural phenomenon, too, about how we, how we socialize kids, young people to to handle and or express emotions. And I mean, handle in the sense of how people um, who are witnessing or, or reacting to other people's emotions and how they're reading those emotions and how, what they, how they interact with people in that sense. But, but you know, with girls, um, in many cases, you know, there's a, and again, this is a generalized, I'm going to speak from a more of a kind of a Western perspective here. But girls are generally socialized uh, to to be able to express emotions, and that's acceptable and expected, right? And and so, for example, tears being one of those ones out there that, you know, are girls are allowed to express tears. That's that's a, you know generally accepted, whereas boys are not. Boys are socialized very differently. That they're not. They learn very quickly. Uh, they get a lot of negative feedback about expressing tears. Um, yet it's interesting, you know, when you get to the workplace, now we have them as adults and suddenly, you know, we get into, uh, in a variety of different settings, mentoring being one of those places that I think this is important because there's a gender dynamic here that, you know, when, when women express tears, you know, what does that mean? And, and oh, by the way, there's this, again, very much a, a generalized, um, understanding that women, um, cry more than men, um. There's some science behind that, by the way. <laughs> and the reality is that women produce more prolactin, uh, which is the hormone that does produce tears. So they they do. But again, how they're expressed is co- socially and culturally defined. And because we, again, we socialize girls to say, hey, it's okay to express tears. Boys, not so much, right? They, they find a million different ways to hold them back and to not show and express those kinds of emotions in that particular way. But the other thing that it also keeps us from understanding what they mean, right? And because tears are just a part of the the expression and we're really signaling to others about something that we're experiencing, something that we're feeling in the moment and what we may need, right? So from an empathy perspective, what we may need as a person. Um, And in in a work setting, that's important, right? Because what people need is what they need to thrive and to not just survive, but thrive and to excel and perform in their job. But tears don't always mean the same thing. And, you know, so often men think that when a woman cries that, you know, somehow we've offended her or she's upset, um, she's sad in some way, stressed out. Women will also tell you that that's not always the case, that sometimes they tear up when they're really excited about something. Ever get a little watery eyed, and I know men do this as well. Get a little watery eyed when they're really excited about something. Um, when you're really, women also said that you know when you're really frustrated by something. This is another one that comes out all the time. That they may tear up, or they may may look like they're crying and expressing tears in a particular way. Um, and so you know, this is one again that we're socialized to interact in a particular way that that really kind of holds people back. And when in particular men as mentors and mentoring women, um, when men are afraid that, oh, I might upset her, um, I might, I might challenge her or stress her out in a way that's going to make her cry. And these are getting into kind of some of these very patriarchal and, and kind of 
you know, benevolent sexism uh, aspects mm. of this, chivalrous in some ways too, I guess. But um, but it holds us back from from doing the kind of mentoring and the developing aspects that we need to be doing to have them excel, to have them grow and develop as leaders in the same way that we know as men, we had people do that for us, right? But we have this assumption that, oh, we can't do that for them because, oh, I, I don't want to do that. And so we hold it back. And this is one of the challenges, right, in how we're socialized and doing this. But, you know, emotions are just one of them. Um, mm. We're socialized around how, you know, and this gets into leadership perceptions eventually as we, we think about women. Um, when women become assertive, right, then, or directive in nature as leaders, very stereotypically masculine, right? Agentic is the way we, we often talk about it. They get labeled your favorite B word. And mm. as an adult, that's, that's not bossy. As a girl, it might be bossy, but it's something else as, you know, as a woman uh, leader out there. And again, this gets to, you know, their ability to use authority, to direct and use power, right? And this is the pushback we, that they often get. And sometimes as men, you know, we just kind of, we end up, if we don't understand that, we buy into it. And we say, well, and we just agree with that in some ways. And it's like, no, 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 you, you, you can't, that's not helpful. In the same way about women's competence, that we as men, you know, and we're socialized as boys, there's an assumption that as boys that, you know, you can do things, you can do all of these things in the world, actions that are, are looked at as being boy things or things that men do, right, in the realm of what men do, as opposed to what women do, which is not what boys do. And so therefore, women don't have competence in that. And we learn that at a very young age. I mean, it's really, it's really quite scary uh, to see how young the kids learn these kinds of things. Um, and they, again, we take those into the workplace as adults, and that becomes now women are having to constantly prove themselves, right? We as men, we, we, we demand that they, hey, before you get to do that, you got to show me that you can actually, you've got the experience to be able to do that. Mm. Whereas RJ, I look at you and I go, oh, you know, for doing this role, ah, RJ's never done it before, but I'm, I'm sure he's going to do great. Because I assume as a man that you're going to be able to do it because you have potential. Right. So we evaluate men on potential and women on proven performance in the past. And as we know, as leaders, you'll never get there if you're always waiting to have to if you have to have the experience for the next job. Guess what? You just never get there. It's an interesting one there that you touched on, because, you know, we know that women will tend to not stretch themselves in assuming they can meet a gig where a dude will. Yep. And I wonder how much or how incumbent that is as fathers or people raising girls early to get them to push themselves in the same way that we would expect our boys to, right? And I think as leaders, we then have these young women, it is incumbent on us I was having a conversation to a couple of the young girls in our organization the other day about, you know, equating um, game changers within a business to the actual tennis player versus the crew. And, you know, saying to the girls that at some point in your career, you're going to want to become the tennis player, right? Like that's, you're going to want to be, the man in an arena, in the arena. And well, how do we then get you there? But the challenge, and I know in your book, you talked about it is women will tend to want to be competent before stretching. And that's an interesting point. Do you have anything on that? Yeah. And, and they get that uh, messaging very young, right? As young girls that they, they need to have that competence. They have to prove themselves first because um, when they do fail, then, or they take risk, and this is another one, I think risk-taking is another interesting aspect of this too, is how that's socialized. Um, they get all this very negative messaging and backlash and penalties that come at them to tell them, oh, that's not okay. I shouldn't take risk like that because that's not valued, right? And we get that messaging either from our parents, it could be from teachers, uh, it could be from other important adults in our lives as we're growing up, coaches, another place that, you know, again, you can find some of that as well, very much socialized. Whereas with boys, risk-taking, no, that's the more risk you take, right? The, 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 we, we, we actually applaud that and we value it and we encourage you to do more of that. 
And the fact that you don't know the, you've never done that before, you don't, you don't know how to do these things, ah, you'll figure it out, go do it, just try it, you'll be all right. And, and we, we accept those things and that, again, those last and they stay with us down the road. And, and this is why I think in particular, it takes on a little different perspective for women uh, as girls become women and they get into the workforce. Well, now we put it into the workplace and, and now it's, well, okay, here's this job. And gosh, it seems like that would be a great job. Maybe my, maybe even somebody's told me that would be a great job. And, and we've all seen the research, you know, it, there's eight criteria for the job, eight qualifications or competency areas for the job. And, you know, and, and she's got like seven of the eight and she won't put her name in the hat. She won't, she won't, you know, self promote herself in, you know, towards going into doing that or nominate herself. But there are, 27 guys who don't even meet half the criteria mm. who are like, I got that I'm in. And they're putting their names in the hat. Right. And so it's like, well, wait a minute. Right. So what's, what's holding them back. And it, it is a lot of it's been socialized. They've learned that in a variety of different ways, but this is where we, as men, as mentors, and as we understand how this operates, we can overcome some of that. And we can say, Hey, you know, I saw this job opening and I thought you would be perfect for this. And here's why and go through all of her accomplishments, her achievements, the milestones, her experience, and her potential, and why this maps into the vision for her career going forward. Show her what that looks like, and say, and give her that, that affirmation. Again, again, women are much more likely to experience imposter feelings in a very male-dominated workplace, right? Because you look around, and you're like, I don't know that I really fit here. Did they make a mistake when they hired me? And I don't see anybody who looks like me and what am I doing here kind of a thing. So it's really easy to get a lot of little messages there that tell you that you don't belong and that you're not necessarily qualified to move forward into these things. But we can overcome that if you understand how it operates. And, and we see that because, you know, you know, those seven, those 27 dudes who put their name in the hat and, you know, they're not half as qualified mm. as she is. So the, why that leads, I guess, to the, the, the crux of the piece here. Why should men or why does men mentoring women differ from women mentoring women? Like, where's the, the value there? Like, why is that so important? Other than from a guy's perspective, doing the right thing and being a good dude. But sure. how does it actually benefit the woman and the organization? Yeah. And, and you know, this comes up all the time. And I think it's... It, it's a great conversation that needs to be had because I think it gets a lot of people kind of moving in the right direction towards what we need to be accomplishing. And the first thing is, you know, most people, you know, when you enter into a career, you enter in the workplace, what's the first thing you're told as a junior person, go find a mentor, right? Go find somebody to, to help guide you and to show you the ropes and give you all the information you need and, and give you some insight into where, you know, your strengths are and where you need to be headed. And that's great. And so what do you do when you go look for a mentor? You and I go look for a guy. Um, how about a woman? She might, she probably, she might look for a guy, but in most cases, she's probably like us. You know, she's going to look for somebody who looks like her, a woman, a senior woman in the organization. Too many male dominated industries and professions, right? There just aren't that many senior women as you go up there. There might be a lot of junior women, but there aren't a lot of senior women often up there. And so Guess what? If you're doing a great job of recruiting and hiring lots of talented junior women, which again, lots of organizations have broken the code on this already, but to retain them, we've got to do the mentoring. We've got to do the sponsoring, all the career development pieces of that. And if you go, well, for the three senior women we have, you're going to mentor these 300 junior women. There's just not enough time in a day. The math doesn't work. Um, and it's not fair these, these women, these senior women have real jobs and they have a lot of responsibility and they, they just can't afford to be, you know, mentoring that many, all the women, all the junior women. So, but why can't men do it? And here's the, here's the interesting part. So when women are mentored by men, um, they make more money. They have more promotions. They're more successful. We're more likely to retain them in our organization. They're more likely to have a higher organizational identity and commitment to the organization. All great things that, you know, you go down to HR and they're like, yes, that's what we want. Right. Um, David, just with that, David, sorry, just with that, is that generally because the competence increases or the male helps navigate the political scene or both? 
And that's not because we as guys are better mentors, by the way. <laughs> so we're not, absolutely not. It's because we have, we tend to be more in more positions of power, status, yeah. influence, the ability to open doors. We have more social capitals. We have different kinds of networks. And so you can do those kinds of things. And this is why it's important that, you know, again, that men be involved. If we're going to continue to create more equity in the workplace, that we have to we have to mentor more diversely and think about our mentoring, uh, who we mentor from a network perspective. So thinking about who's in your mentoring network in terms of who you're mentoring and do they all look like you? That ought to be a, a question that we ask ourselves. And if so, why is that? And is that, is that by choice or is that by, because we're just waiting to see who comes to us or is it people we, you know, we're reach out to or why aren't we, mentoring in a more diverse manner in the same way that you should look at your mentoring network in terms of who's mentoring you, right? So for men, it's important that we have female mentors out there for the same reasons that it's important for us to be mentoring women, right? Because there's a lot of great benefits that we're missing out on and our organization's missing out on it if we don't do it that way. Hey guys, just wanted to take a quick break to thank you for your continued support of the Ultra Habits Show. It's through your support that we've been able to scale this thing so quickly and so strong over the past year. And we're truly grateful for your continued support. If you haven't already, please go to www.ultrahabits.co and subscribe. You'll get cool information, insights, and be up to date with everything we're doing. And also, if you haven't, please rate this podcast The link is in the show notes. When you do this, you help us scale our message of ultra performance, ultimately helping us create more impact with our tribe. Anyways, we're going to leave you back in the hands of our wonderful guest. I would also be controversial in saying this, but I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) That my view is when you mentor women, women tend to be more loyal to the firm and to people into leaders. That's been my experience. Whereas dudes will typically think of themselves first. So like for Mm. me, what makes sense is when you mentor women and you really invest in women, women are smart and capable, but they tend to be more loyal. So I feel that there's a potentially competitive advantage for the firm. Would you say that's true, my assumption, or is that kind of untested? That is true. And there's research to back that up that, again, and we, we would, you would find it in the research around what they would call organizational commitment. And this is where, and this, and this relates to things like, so, and here's why it works and why this happens. It's, it's about developing trust. And when people feel like they have trusting relationships, they feel like they belong, they're valued, they're respected, you appreciate what I bring. And so therefore I'm loyal. I'm loyal back to the company. The other thing that people often forget with mentoring, and I think this is really important for everyone out there, that remember that when your your mentee looks at you as, as the mentor, you represent the organization, assuming we're in an organizational setting here, right? Yeah. Yeah. You represent the organization. They don't see you as being some, somehow separate or just an, as an individual. No, you're part of whatever the organization is, which is why it's important, you know, um, we've been having these conversations around this during the pandemic in particular about, you know, people feeling isolated and making sure that mentors were reaching out to their mentees to know that, hey, no, I'm still here. I still care about you. I still I'm still committed to our relationship. I'm still committed to helping you advance and reach your career goals and your career dreams out there. And it's interesting that it makes such a difference because, again, mentees, we've seen this in the research believe right that it's not just their mentor reaching out to them it's my company is reaching out to me my company cares about me and so therefore we build the trust we build the loyalty and the commitment just to uh unpack your views on um the this because this is obviously very topical organizations are moving to more of an affirmative action stance with women where's your view on so i've had conversations with um particularly with joel neve who was in the air force he was a elite air force pilot and we talked about combat situations which you'd be familiar with Mm -hmm. how do you overlay 
the best person for the job versus a the affirmative action movement and what's your view on that like mm-hmm. do you have a view on that i do and let me let me first tell you what uh, because again i'm uh, you know as a as a behavioral scientist i'm all about the the research and the evidence you know i like to be mm-hmm. informed mm-hmm. And, and you know our our feelings about the perceptions are important too but but again, when we when you're talking about affirmative action, we're, so we're talking about either quotas or, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. goals or targets. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I would tell you is that so there's a difference between quotas, targets, and goals. Um, but they they're all effective, by the way. So you can say a lot of people don't like affirmative action because it's directive in nature and it's telling people what they have to do, as opposed to um, thinking about more of a kind of collaborating and bringing people along. <laughs> <laughs> a different way maybe in the 21st century to think about that we uh we tend to like that and and you can certainly equate that today to some places in the united states when it comes to mandates around vaccines uh yep. and that same that, that same idea but here in particular i think it's really interesting and useful that understanding that so targets and goals and and sometimes that language is used a little bit differently and in terms of people's ability to choose and how much they understand about that. But in general, those work better. They're, they're, they're very successful. Um, and as opposed to quotas, because that's a mandate now, they're not as successful as, as having goals. So there are targets. There are things that people to aim and motivate behavior in a particular direction and to work toward, as opposed to being said, thou shalt do this. <laughs> and you have, you have to do it by this date and this time. Um, it actually works. And so in, in particular, in majority dominated, in this case, male dominated areas and spaces, um, to kind of get things moving in the right direction, targets and goals are helpful in getting us going. And once we begin to shift and move the pendulum a little bit in terms of numbers, as you increase the percentage of women, um, and, and we, you know, not, you don't have to get all the way to parity, but we get, you get to some sort of a core group of women and men begin to say, hmm, wow, they're doing just fine. Matter of fact, they're doing incredible and I'm learning a lot from them. And oh, by the way, we're doing better as a company. And, you know, so suddenly your eyes get open. There's all this awareness of, of other things that are going on around you that we were missing out on all along. And we just had no idea, but Sometimes mm-hmm. to get things just moving in that direction, it does take something like affirmative action or, a, again, I think targets and goals have been shown in the research to work much better. Yeah, you know, I get that. And it probably for another show, because it's a massive digression, I'd be keen to understand the nuanced differences of, say, a, you know, like a a, a, a black man mentoring a white woman like these would be interesting Mm. dynamics that would really be um, a woman mentoring a man like that's a whole nother conversation but um because i can get lost in the the detail i think we'll we'll stay uh, focused um but i find that stuff interesting and i'm sure you you would have your your views on that In, in terms of what do you what do you find most men struggle with in terms of inhibitors when looking to mentor or actually mentoring women so, so as barriers is that was yeah that, correct okay. barriers yeah you know and that's a great another great question because i think that um that's not well understood and i think again part of part of overcoming the challenge of increasing uh, diversity in mentoring um, is overcoming some of these barriers. You know, when we did the research for Athena Rising, Brad and I, um, as we were talking, not just to women, but as we were talking with men and learning about their experiences in mentoring, how they overcame so, a lot of these. And there were so many of them that we, we act, you probably remember in the book, there's a, there's a chapter in there that talks about the reluctant male syndrome, RMS as we were calling it. And <laughs> You know, and we laugh about it because, and we were just, we were being a little tongue in cheek there and having some fun with it, but, but there are, there are a lot of these out there. And so it starts with things like biases, implicit associations, perceptions of, of each other. Right. And so if I, as a, if I, as a man and, and I don't understand this, you know, that I have perceptions of women as they're, um, wow, she's really nice. And, uh, but, 
you know, she doesn't seem like real strong leader material. Um, or, wow, you know, um, she seems like a risky investment. I'm afraid, you know, as one man told us that she, you know, he looked at originally at women in one, in one case um, as kind of ticking time bombs of maternity, as he called them. <laughs> like they were suddenly going to start popping out babies all over the place. And it's like, which is fine if they do, but yeah, yeah. But, but again, that perception that, oh, mm. if I invest in her as a mentee and then I'm, I'm going to lose her, right? Mm. To, because she's going to have a baby and she's never coming back. So these perceptions, right, implicit associations about who women are and what they can do or can't do back to their competence, right, aspect as well, hold us back from investing in them or not seeing them as being worthy of our time and our investment in that way. Um, the other one I think is really interesting is, is anxiety. And so a lot of guys told us that, you know, I obviously have a mother um, and and for a lot of men out there, they, they may have sisters and um you know, and other female, um, you know, family members, many men are maybe even married to a woman or have a daughter. Um, and so they felt like, you know, they were socialized in a way that they had a kind of a script to follow and what that relationship looked like, what was, what was expected, what was okay, where the lines were and all these kinds of things. But they said, you know, I don't really have a script when it comes to having a close personal and professional relationship very intimate in many cases with a woman at work. I don't know what that looks like. That's non-sexual, right? Mm. Um, and, you know, we, and we, we joked about these because, you know, we said that, well, men have these man scripts, these social scripts for how to interact with women that they know and their families, but they don't have this one at work. And so what happens when, then when I get into a close relationship with a woman at work, like a mentoring relationship, how do I act? What do I do? And believe it or not, men got very anxious about it. And what do you do when you're anxious? you avoid, right? That's discomfort. And so we tend to avoid those things. But the the hard part about this is that the reality is when you, the only way to overcome that, as my clinical psychologist co-author would tell you, is that uh, if you're overcoming any kind of anxiety is exposure. So you need exposure therapy to overcome this. So more interaction, more coffees, more mentoring, more time together, more lunches, more collaborating and working together on projects so that we begin to become more comfortable working together and we understand what that feels and looks like. But for, you know, and again, for, you know, for me and many other uh, maybe older men who've been around the military for a long time, you know, we grew up in a, an environment where there were no women, you know, in the workplace, right? I, my first squadron, there were, there were no women there, mm. none. You know, it wasn't until much later that we had women integrated in. And so it was suddenly, you know, this is one of the things we never talked about was how do you interact with women at work? And men were scared um, and they were scared of making a mistake, uh, of offending her, of doing something wrong, uh, of ending up in, in HR, you know, because you, <laughs> you, you, you crossed a line that somehow men didn't think they understood or knew what to do. And, you know, and the other really kind of, I'm a kind of funny one here is that, a lot of guys told us like, oh, yeah, but, you know, wouldn't it be weird if I was in a mentoring relationship with a woman and I found her attractive? Mm. Oh, my God, that would just be so weird. And so we always love to remind men of this great social psych research that talks about mutual attraction. And they and this research, you bring people together, men and women, and they and they basically they evaluate how much how attractive they think the other person is across from them. And so you rate them on a scale of one to 10, right? And then, and then you turn around and you have to rate how much do you think the other person finds you attractive, right? So you flip the scale on them. And, it, you know, as it turns out, there's one gender that radically overestimates how much they think the other one finds I wonder. Attractive. I wonder what gender that is, man. Yeah, it's yeah. us dudes. I'm sorry. But, um, <laughs> one again, overestimating things. Uh, but so, you know, there's all these things that were going on. And then, of course, Me Too, you know, in 2017, when Me Too went widespread, that, that it just exacerbated a lot of these issues. And and so there's a lot of these that, you know, we we as men, we have to learn to how do we overcome these challenges? How do we overcome some of these barriers to to engaging and seeing these really incredibly talented women um, as colleagues and worthy of our, you know, of our time and the investment and, and really collaborating and, and understanding that. And that's why we use the, um, the term Athena in the title of the book um, was because for us, you know, for me and for me and Brad, when we were at the time teaching, both teaching at the Naval Academy, 
He said, you know, if more men could be like us, where we see the incredibly talented women that we work with every day, the students, um, these women who are, you know, again, they are true Athenas. They are incredibly bright and, I mean, so smart. And, um, but at the same, you know, so this is the wisdom of Athena, right? But at the same time, they're warriors, true warriors, and they're going to go lead sailors and Marines into combat. And to provide anything less than as much as we're giving to the men, you know, would be a disservice not only to them, but to their people. Mm-hmm. And I think that, again, as leaders, if we could remember that, and as mentors, if we could remember that, that we need to be doing that. It's not just for them, it's for the people that they're going to be leading and the success of our own organization. So finding different ways to motivate yourself to do the work, I think, is really helpful. Just a reflection upon your context in the military. I haven't been in the military, but I can assume that what creates the added um, complexities that bonding and trust in intense situations, you know, to get to those tight and close relationships, you share, there's a level of intimacy and brother sisterhood that occurs, mm-hmm. which could blur the lines of traditional HR. For instance, you go out and get drunk all night and you do stuff that's crazy that, builds that trust and, and equity in and with each other. And that would have been quite challenging, I would imagine, in the military as it went from male domination to, okay, well, how do we enable women to now share in those uh, equity-building events that we do or we did, which only had dudes, right? And mm-hmm. so that would have been a very confusing and probably not managed intentionally, <laughs> you know, by the military. Like they would have, it would have been a hindsight. Oh shit, there's women in the military. We need to figure out how we're actually gonna, right? And I guess now with the high, you know, with with obviously we're much more progressed than we were before. According to Shannon, not very much though. But you know, like it it would have been challenging. I would imagine. Yeah, and but I I think that there's. You know, there's an element of, of truth there to the, you know, thinking about the bonding and the relationship building, right? The, the trust building that has to go on there and what that looks like. And, um, you know, if we, you know, again, in organizations where whether there's just a few women or there's lots of women, but if, if those are the places where, again, not saying what, what are the right types of events or right types of mm. uh activities we should be doing to to create those, but whatever they are, right? If you're not including women, then you're isolating them. And you're also, this is part of the challenge with, um, again, why it's important for men to be doing the mentoring as well is that we're not sharing a lot of the insider intel, right? All the insider information, the hidden agendas, the, oh, this is where you need to go to do this, the informal rules and practices. And we all know, hey, there's there's the written rules and policy and process, and then there's how things really happen in the everyday practice of doing things. And if you're not on the inside, then you don't know these things. And if those things only get shared in the men's room or on the golf course or wherever, guess what? Women are never going, it's, it's going to be really challenging for them to succeed in the same way that guys do. They will never be on that same level playing field. So again, does it change some of the activities and the way we do the trust building? Certainly. Did some of that need to change anyway? Certainly. Um, and and again, and the military is just one place. I mean, this is going on in the civilian workforce too, about a lot of places where, you know, the after after work hours, uh, time in the bar and, you know, and doing these kinds of things for a lot of ways, that's just not working for everyone today. And And recognizing that we've got to find ways to do the relationship and trust building it includes everybody. So wh- what are the what are the kinds of things we need to be doing? When do we need to be doing them? Where do we need to be doing them? And as a leader, I think we really have to be thoughtful and purposeful about doing that. I've got one final question. It's two-part question. One's tactical, one's strategic. You know, one is, okay, you've identified your, your mentee. How do you actually execute? It's like, do you go up and say, hey, you want to be my mentee? And the second part of the question is, from an organizational perspective, <clears throat> how could an organization then embed that practice as a habit? Wow. Yeah. Do we have a couple more hours? 
<laughs> so so let me let me hit the first one first the tactical because i think this is a great one and yeah. and it's really important too um and, it, and oh by the way it works both directions right so think about also if what if you're the junior woman and you're seeking mentorship and and women are encouraged to do this right to to go out there and find find that guy right that you think would be a great mentor and and find a way to strike up that relationship um so there's different challenges with that let me do it from the way you you just gave it. And so let's say I'm the senior guy and I and I see you, RJ, you're you're gonna play the, the junior woman right here, right now. So let me try it a couple of different ways with you. Hair, right. And, no, and not everybody gets not everybody's gonna see this, right? But they can hear, they can at least hear me when I say this. But RJ, I've been I've been watching you. Can I mentor you? Yes. <laughs> Am I supposed maybe, to say maybe <laughs> and, or, and let, me, let me run away first. And, that's I'd, a bit intense. and, and it might be, kinda, <laughs> I'd like to mentor you. It's like, hey, you know, my, in my creepiest going? voice I could find, right? <laughs> and guess what? Women are going to run away from that. And, yeah. and I'll explain why, but if it's not obvious to the listeners, but the, how about try this? Um, hey, um, RJ, I saw that presentation you did today and Wow, I was so impressed. I mean, you really, really did an incredible job. And, you know, I was thinking to myself that, you know, the hiring committee here, when they hired you, you know, they really got it right. And we are so fortunate to have you here. And, you know, um, if there's anything I could ever do to, you know, to help you and, and helping you move forward and figuring out where you want to go and what's next for you. Hey, um, my door's open. Love to have a coffee with you. Let me know if that would be good for you. And and so there's two different ways there. The first one, obviously, I, you know, kind of being very creepy, but I, you know, I didn't provide any context for why I was asking you or, you know, what was the point behind it? And so you could fill in the blanks pretty quickly, right? If you were a woman and be like, what does he really want? Uh, what's mm -hmm. he after? And right, all sorts of things come to mind at that point. But if I give you context, like I did in the second version, right? And I put it in a particular way, um, I didn't even ask, I didn't even ask or offer you mentorship, right? I didn't even use the word mentor in there. And people find that because it can be kind of, um, can be kind of a little bit of invoking a little bit of privilege. And, you know, as you think about kind of it, it, it reinforces our notions about hierarchy and, and, mm -hmm. you know, and what it looks like to be in a mentoring relationship. And I didn't do that. I treated you more as a colleague, somebody I saw who belonged here and really wanted valued who you are and what you want to do. And I snuck in a little affirmation with you too, because I told you about how great you were and how lucky we were to have you. And people love that. And people, it really makes a difference. And again, people feeling valued and wanting to do those things. And, and it was an offer. So if you come by my office, great. If you don't come by my office, hey, that's fine too. You know, that's okay either way. So thinking about providing context, I think is really important. Making it an offer, not asking for a relationship. And this goes both directions too, right? For the women out there listening. If you're asking a more senior man to be uh, your mentor, as Sheryl Sandberg told us in many interviews with her that, you know, it's really kind of awkward when people would come up after she would speak and they would say, Hey, Cheryl, I love that. It was awesome. Would you be my mentor? And it's like, Oh, you know, it's like, what a mood killer, right? You're asking for this yeah. relationship. I don't even know mm -hmm. you. And who are mm -hmm. you? And do we have any chemistry? And is there mm -hmm. any, you know, what's the synergy mm -hmm. between us? Mm -hmm. And it's really a mood killer. So start small. Um, in informal relationships like this, they start with a small ask and a small offer in some cases, and then they grow. As you get to know somebody, you spend more time together, you find the connection, and this is what we call the mere exposure effect. We begin to like these people, and we begin to open up, again, all of our social capital and opportunities for them. Strategically, um, we really need to move away from, for the most part, from a mentoring program perspective to a mentoring culture perspective. And what I mean by that is it's okay to have some mentoring programs because one of the things we know for formal programs is that people who are less likely to get mentoring, which are people who are non-majority, so women in a male, traditionally male-dominated industry, uh, people of color, again, other people like that, um, because it's hard for them to, you know, people to look around and to connect with them and see them. They don't flock together. So they're more likely to get mentoring. That's a good thing. But most people appreciate the informal aspect of mentoring. So how do you create a mentoring culture? Well, we got to value it and we got to find small ways, just like with um, when I offered you the, the opportunity to 
you know, to come by and we could talk more about your career here. Um, you can affirm people in the work that they're doing when you see them. There could be small interactions in the, you know, as we're passing in the break room um, and just make make connections, even if you don't know them very well. And and uh, and begin to value the little parts of, of that that we can do and we can make these offers and doing this on, a, on an everyday basis. The other thing, don't forget that as peers, we can be great mentors for each other. And people forget this, that peers are very influential. And, and we can, again, do a lot of very informal mentoring with each other as peers. Um, cohort mentoring is another way to do it. And reverse mentoring, I think, is one of the fun ways to think about this, too, if you haven't heard about that. that again, where you think about junior employees mentoring a senior employee. So you got this brand new, maybe a junior woman who is mentoring the CEO, this white male CEO of the company. What could he possibly learn mm -hmm. from her? all kinds of things. Mm. And this is and this is one of the great things about and the last thing I'll leave you with is the benefits of doing mentoring across difference. I'll just put it that way broadly. But as we think about mentoring across gender differences, that when men mentor women, they learn a lot. And and what they learn is they get access to more information in the organization that they wouldn't have otherwise had. They have more diverse networks. And I think the great thing about this is we find that they have more empathy, higher emotional intelligence, better communication skills, all makes them more successful and better leaders. And at the end of the day, they get to take that home. So it makes you a better partner and parent as well. So it's a win-win-win, but we often don't talk about the benefits of doing the mentoring across difference and what the advantages are of that in particular, because it gets you outside of places and you're really learning a lot more. No, that's, uh, that's, we we um i was involved in a, a a conversation with an organization of intergenerational learning <laughs> and there's a whole piece in that man like yeah. just to kind of surmise and create a picture of what you're talking about a few days ago we had a presentation and me and my business founder who's a, a founder here we were getting coached by the junior staff on working the technology the presentation just the, the basic stuff that at our because we're not tech orientated, just basic. I mean, there's so much information and gains to be had in that kind of 360 degree of, of mentorship. So I think that's quite profound in, in, in terms of the potential impact, but we will leave it there, David. I really, really appreciate your time. Uh, very insightful, very topical, important discussion. Where can we find more about yourself uh, as well as Brad? Where can we go and get more information? Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, we have a website. It's Workplace Allies, all one word, workplaceallies.com. And you can read about what we're up to and our latest writing and where we're producing in different outlets. And then certainly more about the book, our first book, Athena Rising, and then of course, our, our new book that just came out with uh, Harvard Business Review Press uh, just this last year, and that's Good Guys, How Men Could Be Better Allies for Women in, in the Workplace. Well, thank you so much, David. All the best from here down under. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Really enjoyed it, RJ.